Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So we are almost done with our work through Romans, the book of Romans. And uh, middle school, high school, if you need to take off and go to classes, they're headed out that door right now. You can join them. Go ahead and run. We're glad you're joining us here for this part of the worship, but feel free to take off and go with them if you want. So in first 11 chapters, Paul explained the gospel that we're justified by God through grace alone, through faith because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then we explored so many powerful ways that when we really more fully get that in our minds and our hearts, it gives us purpose, it gives us joy, it teaches us so much about what love is. In chapter 12, Paul describes how living a life of love changes our relationships with others, including our enemies. Last week, we kind of had a doozy of a message because we talked about, Paul talked to us about, how we relate to our government as followers of Jesus. And today in Romans 14, we kind of got another doozy. Paul applies all that he's been saying throughout the whole book to a very specific issue within the Roman church. The focus is this, how to get along with people in church who disagree with you on something you feel passionate about. And that's not something we deal with ever, is it? Paul begins saying this, chapter 14, he says, except the one whose faith is weak. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to compare and contrast those who are weak and strong. And actually he's going to say that neither one of them really fully understands the gospel yet. And then he says, without quarreling, over disputable matters. So the problem is this. Christians are fighting and passing judgment on each other about things that are disputable, referring to things that God has not spoken specifically about in the Bible, the things that God has not clearly forbidden or commanded. Paul is saying, we're people and we're going to disagree, but disagreement should not lead to division over things that are disputable. Now, There are things that are not disputable. In Galatians, Paul says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you you accepted, let them be under God's curse. I think that's kind of a strong statement, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about removing someone from the community if they consistently, persistently, openly practice immorality. But not everything is on that level. The point is, not everything is a first-order issue. We may have very strong opinions, but what Paul is saying is if God has not specifically clarified an issue, if you cannot find chapter and verse to show what God commands or forbids, that we hold those issues less adamantly. It's not a first-order kind of issue. And when it's not clear in the Bible, God expects us to use wisdom to address whatever situation we're facing, but we cannot be dogmatic about it. In fact, that's actually maturity. Maturity is the wisdom to know the right thing to do in the right situation. And amid our differences, we practice love and flexibility. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong beliefs, but learning when and how to show the strength of your beliefs. And it may be, it may be helpful to think of sin as kind of a line. 
And God has on one side of that line, he says, don't cross over this line. Anything you cross over this line is going to be sin, right? So we have sex outside of marriage. We have don't get drunk. We have don't watch porn. We have don't have an affair. We have don't steal, don't murder. That's all clearly over the line in sin. These issues are clear in Scripture, right? On the other side of the line are many, many, many important things. Yet God doesn't specifically forbid or command what we do on those, so we have freedom, and there will be varying opinions of what is good. Paul addresses a few contentious issues in the Roman church, in particular in what we're reading today, between the weak and the strong in the faith. Now, the issues he addresses aren't our issues, but we can glean and will glean some really, really important wisdom around how we deal with our own conflicted topics. The first issue he talks about is verse 2. He says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables, which is basically saying all vegetarians are weak. No, it's not saying that. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So this is either an issue that Paul's addressing in the Roman church where they were overly legalistic saying that everybody had to eat like Daniel ate in the Old Testament and only eat vegetables, or more than likely, the issue is because Rome was a city filled with temples and many gods. And most of the meat sold in the market had been presented in some form of idol worship for a blessing and then sold at the butcher shops. And so some of the Roman Christians felt that the meat was therefore tainted. It was like demon meat. We can't buy this meat. We can only eat veggies, was their conclusion. And yet other Christians in the Roman church said, we know the idols are not really gods because there is only one God. And Paul has taught us in Galatians that Jesus' death has cleansed all things for us. So if Paul were saying this today, he would just say, where's the beef? Which one is right? And which one is wrong? Well, actually... Neither party in the Roman church is fully understanding the implications of the gospel, and Paul's going to confront them both. But Paul has a clear opinion on which one is right. We're going to leave that until we see the second issue. The second issue is in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day day alike. So in the Jewish Christians in Rome, there was this thinking that, well, we have to celebrate the Sabbath on a certain day, and the Jewish holidays established by God need to be observed. Even though they they have nothing to do with salvation, God established them, and therefore we need to follow them in order to be right with God. Now, the other Christians in Rome said, no, we don't need to keep all these holidays. We can be flexible because we've been released from the old regulations because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul had opinions on both of these issues. Paul was definitely for eating meat. In verse 14, he says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean. Paul may be referring to Jesus' words in Mark 7, or he might be referring to the word that God God gave Peter in Acts 10. What was unclean is now clean. So God did not create any material thing as evil. It's our sinful hearts that can use things in ways that are not good. Paul also says in Colossians, there isn't any inherently special day of the week. In other words, you don't have to celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. 
And throughout his writings, especially here in Romans, Paul clearly says we're justified by faith and not by works, not by what we eat or the days we celebrate or anything we do. Those who are weak have lost focus, he's saying, on the gospel because they're landing in the do's and don'ts, trying to earn God's pleasure by following all the rules. They're falling into some legalistic thinking, so Paul wants them to think through the gospel more. Paul is not saying these issues are not important. He's also not saying that everybody in this equation is right. That's why this passage is so beneficial for us. Paul is telling us how to navigate disagreements that we have with our sisters and brothers in Christ, and we're convinced they're wrong. Again, these, as Paul is addressing them, are not first-order issues in our faith that are clearly addressed in the Bible. So where there are disputable issues, unity is more important than uniformity. The big idea is God wants us to be unified in the essentials, and we need to learn how to be okay with each other in our opinions and our preferences, even when strongly held. Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind. In other words, it may not feel good. It may not be something you feel like doing, but make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. The attitude of the strong is not to look at those who follow more of these rules and think you're just narrow-minded and that's your problem. I'll live my life the way I want to live and the freedom God has given me. The stronger are not to act superior. Now, the weak Christian, as Paul confronts them, he's saying they will tend to condemn the strong, saying they're in danger of displeasing God by not following these rules. They're not being a good follower of Jesus. They're also not supposed to condemn The weak are those who can't enjoy the fullness of the freedom that God gives them. The strong enjoy more of the fullness of the freedom God gives them, but they do not understand the gospel in how they should treat those who don't agree with them, the weak. We're going to explore this more fully, but basically Paul is saying we need to love and respect one another and for the strong to not just say, I have my freedom and avoid the weaker one. The strong need to be willing to give up some of their freedom at times to help their brother or sister. Now, some of you may be saying, I don't get caught up in all of that arguing. I wouldn't bring division. Let's see. I was debating over how general or how specific we should be in dispute, when we talked about these disputable matters. But then I started thinking, when in Rome, do as Paul does. So we'll follow Paul's lead, and we're going to get specific. And as always, if you have concerns or frustrations, email Jeremy at questvineyard.org. Later in the passage, Paul uh, talks about drinking, so let's talk about alcohol. We also talked about this issue at the beginning of Romans. Does the Bible say we should not drink? No. Biblically, we're free to drink, but not to get drunk. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding celebration. Wine can't be inherently sinful, yet just because we can drink doesn't mean it's wise. Some of the most recent studies say that one in eight American adults have a problem with alcohol. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I guess that's you, Mark. (laughs) You're the eighth. No, seriously. One in eight. 
According to the CDC, alcohol is a significant cause of death in the U.S. More than 95,000 people die every year. That's 261 deaths a day. Yet just because something can be abused doesn't mean we should avoid it. So how do we have a healthy relationship with alcohol? This is a disputable matter. Here are some other issues we've navigated as a church. Debates over whether you can read or watch Harry Potter or do Pokemon or do you remember the whole Teletubbies argument years ago? There are arguments about whether Christians can do yoga. Some people believe that yoga is an Eastern religion practice and some of the poses inherently put you in touch with that Eastern wicked demonic spirituality and therefore you can't do it. Whereas others would say, I don't even, didn't even know that, didn't even think about it, I don't do that, I don't have any pagan aspects, I don't have any focus on that. I just like yoga because it's really great stretches and great muscle exercise and it makes my mind feel restful. There used to be more debate on homeschooling and public schooling until COVID, and then a lot of public school parents really fell in love and admired the homeschooling families. Before that, though, a homeschool mom would be like, I can't believe you let your child be taught about evolution and learn morality in the public school. Your child is going to not have a good biblical view and may be led far away from God. How could you do that? And a public school mom would be like, well, we think we can help our kids with their morals and biblical worldview, and we want them to have to navigate the challenges of making those moral decisions and biblical decisions in a public setting before they leave our home. And frankly, we prefer our kids to have social skills, so it used to get a little bit testy, right? Any buttons pushed yet? How about speaking in tongues? There are Christian denominations that say unless you speak in tongues, you're not a real Christian. There are others who value it, and there are others who say it doesn't even exist today. How about the rapture? Do we get raptured? And if so, when? And what's the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? Is it the president? When is Jesus coming back? How is this all going to play out? This is what Paul is talking about. These are disputable matters. We can all agree to disagree on these issues because if we choose Christ and follow him, we'll all be together at some point. So because we haven't done enough, let's do a little bit more. How about politics? Let's go there. In order to be a Christian, do you need to be a Republican or a Democrat? We have a strong opinion on these. Some say one and some say the other. And yet we know God is not a Republican and not a Democrat, not a socialist, not a conservative, not a liberal. God is above all these categories. These issues matter tremendously. Let's not make light of them. They matter tremendously. But they will not change the world the way the gospel of God can. How about vaccines? Want to go there? We know people who say everyone should be vaccinated out of concern for everyone's safety, and that's the only loving thing to do. And then we have those who don't want to be forced to be vaccinated because they believe it's a decision between them and their doctor that they should have and not be forced to by the government, and they don't necessarily trust that the length of the scientific study is proven enough to make it fully safe for sure, or they object to the vaccines because none of the vaccines aren't free of moral tainting. 
Every single vaccine that we're using right now has in some way either in design or development or only so a couple of them only in the testing to confirm whether it worked have used aborted fetus cells. So they are all morally tainted if you believe that abortion is wrong, which is a Christian view the Bible supports very strongly. We have incredibly strong opinions on this matter, and we should. But how we walk it out with the government was talked about last week. And here Paul is addressing how we walk it out with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we may not argue about eating meat sacrificed to idols, but we have plenty of issues we fight over. Paul gives us some guidance on how to handle these kinds of conflict. First, he says, listen to your conscience. And this is, I think, one of the most powerful teachings that Paul writes Paul says in verse 5, Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord because they give thanks to God. So are you fully convinced it's okay? What you're doing on any one of the issues we brought up or other issues that are disputable? If you feel something is wrong and you do it anyway, it's wrong for you. Paul says it explicitly this way. He says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is a powerful statement. Even if it is not wrong biblically, if you thought it was wrong and you did it anyway, it was wrong, it was sinful for you. What's his point? His big point here is it is dangerous to go against your conscience. I don't think we talk about conscience enough today. We used to all the time, remember all the cartoons had, you know, the little devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. So we used to talk about conscience a lot. Our conscience is a gift from God. In Romans 2, Paul talked about our conscience and how God's law is written in our hearts to help us know right from wrong. Our conscience is such a special gift and we don't want to violate it for ourselves or for anyone else. Your conscience can keep you from many mistakes and much pain in your life. But if you ignore it and you do something your heart cautions you on, you will gradually numb your conscience and eventually wrong doesn't feel wrong anymore. It's a slippery slope. It's a huge way the Holy Spirit speaks to us through our conscience. One of the most important things we can do as a parent, for example, is to help our kids have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit so we don't always have to tell our kids what to do and not do, but help them hear the Holy Spirit and own it for themselves. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would help convict us, speak to our conscience, enlighten our conscience in a way that would lead us into all truth. Asking your children questions is so valuable to their their growth, especially when the issues are not clear in the Bible. Ask them questions like, what is God showing you? How is God leading you? What does God's word say about what you're doing? They may be right or they may be wrong in their conclusions at the moment, but you're there to help them figure out hearing God for their own life. The second tip Paul gives us is this. Be open to your opinions being revised. I mean, he's, he's really highlighting here, again, the reality is 
none of us are ever going to fully be transformed this side of heaven. And we all need to continue to grow. We need to learn more of the Bible, listen to the Holy Spirit, and we need to learn from others. I've been a Christian for more than 50 years, almost 50 years. I have really strong opinions on a lot of things. But I know I'm still in process. And I need to keep my opinions open to being revised. I learned this in a real profound way early on in life. Uh, Very early on in life, everybody around me taught me that certain types of music, including some types of Christian music, were wrong, even sinful. As a kid, I burned a few albums. Later, I learned that wasn't necessarily true. But it took me a while to not feel guilty or guilt about listening to a variety of music. My conscience had to grow upon learning new truth. And you may have to retrain how you feel and think to the right thing as well. So third lesson Paul gives us, patiently accept those who don't see things like you do. Verse 3, he says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Let's just be honest. It can be really frustrating, even irritating, when someone seems so strict with certain rules and tries to impose them on us, right? We think they're legalistic. But be patient first because you may be wrong. And second, be patient because this person may be on a different journey than you're on. They're not all at the same... They may not be at the same place of freedom or understanding of the gospel you are, or you may not understand the gospel as well as you need to understand it yet. Just think for a minute how differently each one of our kids, if you've been a parent, how different it was to parent each one of them. They all were at a different place. God knows and sees each person, their personality, their strengths, and their weaknesses, and knows how to help them in their journey more than we do. Their conscience may have these extra rules because something in their personality may need additional guardrails right now in their life. So how do you come alongside of them knowing that? Remember that God has been very patient and gracious with you. I think that's the first place to start. See, Paul began this, illustra- this, this discussion, though, saying this. He said, accept the one whose faith is weak. This Greek word accept doesn't mean just bear with them. It means to take them by the hand in order to lead them, to welcome, to receive the person into one's heart. Meaning those who are strong in their faith or think they are, are not to distance themselves from those that they think are weak who may disapprove of their actions. They are to try to keep the weaker brothers close to them. And that's not easy, is it? Especially if someone has a rigid set of rules that disapproves of something you're doing and they may be weak in those rules, but they try to impose them on you. It's not easy to stay close to them, is it? But verse 3 continues and says, And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. So Paul flips and speaks to the weak here. For God has accepted them. The one who has more rules, who is disapproving of other Christians, thinking they're not very spiritual, they're not being good Christians, he says they're not to judge either because God has accepted them. This word judge is to reject, is to condemn. If that's you, Paul is challenging you saying, that's not your place. If God accepted them, who are you to reject them? Even if you're right, who are you to reject them? 
Again, in Paul's context, this is, again, not about clear moral issues seen in the Bible. This is about disputable things. But frankly, sometimes we think something that's, uh, that's disputable is absolute, and we treat it as absolute. So we've got to be prepared for the fact that even on those things that we think are absolute, do not judge. God has accepted them. We can be patient because we don't know all the mistakes we've done, yet God accepts us despite our mistakes. Being patient means we don't pull away from those we disagree with in these areas. Now, this leads to the fourth point. Stop judging God's servants as if they reported to you. Paul says this really explicitly. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will Stand, he says, for the Lord is able to make them stand. God is the one with the gavel. God is the one who judges them and will judge you. You don't need to pass judgment on these issues or these people. We can trust that God is working on both of you. We don't need to be the ones to control their behavior. We can trust that God is working his good plan in both people's lives. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we don't speak about our convictions. Paul actually shares his convictions in this very passage. But after saying his conviction and saying it in a respectful way, Paul still embraces those who disagree with him. He doesn't pull away. He doesn't look down at them. And God is wanting us to figure out, how do I come alongside people? Rather than beating them down, how do I build them up? How can I help them and how can I embrace more fully the gospel? So fifth lesson he gives us, choose another's spiritual health over your freedom. Verse 15, he says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Pretty plain. Do not buy your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. In other words, to build each other up. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So Paul had just shared in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But here he says, we can harm or destroy the work of God in others by having them do things that are against their conscience or us doing things that violate their conscience in front of them. Verse 21, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So if eating your meat or drinking your wine or whatever the issue is, is harmful to your brother, you don't do it. You give it up, in front of them at least. So let's take drinking as an example again. The weak person may believe that drinking of alcohol is sinful. Yet if they see another believer drinking, he might think, well, maybe I guess it's okay and they'd start drinking. But if that person starts drinking and they have not resolved this issue in their heart and their mind and they still think it's bad, they can harm their conscience. And when they harm their conscience and numb it, then they can start doing other things that are truly wrong because their conscience is now numbed. If we go back to the example of the line, on one side is sin, 
On the other side is what is good. For one person, they can get really close to that line, right? They can drink and not get drunk. But for others, if they get close to that line, they're going to sin. They may have the freedom in Christ getting close to there, but they need to follow their conscience. They may think, I cannot drink or be around those who do. I'm too vulnerable. But if you are stronger and you think you are encouraging them to enjoy their freedom in Christ by getting close to the line, in reality, you may be causing harm to them. See, the question is, if you are okay at the line but they are not, should you drag them toward the line or should you go back farther away from the line to where they are? And Paul's saying you go back. Why? You want to love well and you want to have, you want to have a relationship with them. So let's make this even more specific by way of an example. Let's say you have a new, a new friend, maybe a brand new Christian friend, and you invite them to watch the Buckeyes play where you and your friends usually meet to watch them at a sports bar. You find out the new friend is an alcoholic who struggles. When he, fi- when he finds out uh, where the meeting is, he declines the meeting. And you push a little and he shares that he just can't go to the bar right now. He can't be around alcohol. You have a few choices standing before you in that moment. You could still drag him to the bar and could very well cause him to stumble. Or you could ditch him, isolate him, make him feel left out. Or you could say, let's go find somewhere else that we could meet and watch the game together that doesn't serve alcohol and doesn't have alcohol around. Paul is saying, sacrifice a little bit of your pleasure and freedom to love well. And i got to say, if you can't sacrifice that, then maybe alcohol is too strong of a hold on your life. Maybe you are one of those eight people. Since your pleasure is preventing you from loving well like Jesus asks us to love. The principles that guide us, that guide us is not how can I enjoy my freedom, but what will help encourage and strengthen my brother. We may need to give up our freedom for their sake. Paul says it this way. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. If drinking alcohol really bothers someone's conscience, don't do it in front of them. Don't push them to convince them it's okay. Certainly you can discuss your differing views, but do it respectfully and supportively. If it makes them stumble and fall, love them more than you love your freedom. The sixth and final point, unity over uniformity. Uniformity has everybody being the same, looking the same, thinking the same, acting the same. Unity allows for us to be different. The church should be different and look different economically, socially, racially, ideologically. The church has always had variety in it. Yet we're all in love with the same person, Jesus. He is the center of all we do. And if he is the center, then as everyone gets closer to Jesus, we will get closer to one another. Jesus and Paul emphasize unity. One of Jesus' last prayers is all about the unity of the church. So if we're going to have conflict, it needs to be about the things that are only essential. Yet it seems everywhere we turn, someone is trying to polarize us today, isn't it? 
There was a study done recently on the church after, after COVID. And what they discovered is in most churches that they're more liberal and conservative people left because people became more aware of others' opinions and they didn't want to be around or connected to the people of the opposing opinion. They couldn't find a way to agree, to disagree, or even to have a civil understanding conversation. It happened here. Don't you think we need to find a way to be different than that? To love like Paul and Jesus teach us to love? To be more passionate about Jesus and his commands to love one another than about our political opinions? These issues are important. They're important. Political issues are important. All the issues are important. But they are disputable. We may even have the same goal but we disagree on how to get there. That's the case more often than not. We have to be protective of what the church needs to be focused on. And Paul says it here in this chapter, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our unity is not that we agree on everything, but that we agree on who is Lord of all of our lives. So how do we walk this out this week? I mean, since we're in a time of so much division over politics and people losing friends over vaccination status, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard the last two months of family rejecting family members because one person's not vaccinated or whatever it is. Paul gives us a timely word, doesn't he? As Christians, we need to provide an alternative to the anger in our culture. With so many important issues at stake right now, we need to not get upset and lash out, even though it's so tempting to do so. But publicly, how we express ourselves matters. We still need to express ourselves. We just need to do it differently and better and more loving and more respectful. We need to deal with and speak to the concerns and emotions around us, just like Martin Luther King Jr. did and Bonhoeffer did. But we don't want to cause others to lose their faith because of our actions. Paul hit home last week saying we need to speak in honoring ways and honor others even when we radically disagree with them. Even when they are doing evil things as leaders in our culture, we need to speak honoringly and respectfully about them. The issues matter. But they will not change our world the way a gospel will. So look at your opinions and how you express them, especially to people with whom you disagree. Is the way you're expressing things, does it help people be pointed to Jesus and does it draw people to Jesus? Or does it just more so reflect your liberal or conservative ideology, whichever one it is, and just drive wedges deeper? So maybe some questions we can ask. What are some disputable matters that you are having to navigate If you consider yourself the stronger one, whether you really are or not on those matters, what is your priority? Is it enjoying your freedom? Or is it giving it up to serve another Christian or to serve the world around us? And how can you pursue peace and unity with other Christians? I mean, one way is to just sit down and listen to someone who believes very different than you and do it with great respect and patience. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, this is such a 
difficult topic. I can look at my own life and see all the angst and anger and frustration I have around things that are disputable, and it's just difficult right now. It's probably more difficult than it's ever been in America. Well, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each one of us, that you would give us the wisdom and the patience and the grace and the depth of understanding of how deeply you have forgiven us and accepted us, how deeply you have forgiven and accepted others, that we would be able to be a voice that's different in our culture, that we would be able to respond to the anger and the divisiveness with a voice that looks more like you, Jesus, that sounds more like your love and your invitation. And the Lord, you would help us as a church to walk into the place you want us to walk into, which I believe, God, is, I believe you want the church to be the voice that heals our nation from all these divides. So, Lord, would you help us walk into that in our families, in our workplace, in our friendships, in our neighborhood? And, Lord, would you help us walk into that in our relationships here in the church? with one another, even when we disagree, especially when we disagree on things. So come, Holy Spirit, because I know for me it's impossible to do that without your help, without your guidance, without your convicting, convicting me of what is right and best and good. I know it's impossible to do without you stopping these urges and these impulses to respond quickly without thinking. And Lord, I pray that you'd do that for all of us, that you would give us the wisdom and the patience to respond intentionally in the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in every moment. And Lord, now we just turn our hearts to you and we declare our love and our worship of you in this last song and we pray that your presence would come and continue to speak to us in this moment and do your good work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.